Good morning. Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to our worship service this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin by singing our praises to God together.
whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, His glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. No darkness for those who in Jesus abide. The light of the world is Jesus. We walk in the light when we follow. Peace. 
The moon and stars they wept. The morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross. His blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon him.
Holy Father, we honor you, we praise you, we give thanks to you for all that you have done for us. In this time of worship, let our hearts be so open to you that we sense you doing amazing things in us individually and corporately through the grace of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Sir, what a greeting with others who are here in worship today. want to uh, mention real quickly, tonight at 5 o'clock, you are uh, invited to join uh, in the community room directly behind us here for a dessert reception. Uh, it's a chance to uh, have some time of fellowship, but also to uh, meet and connect and uh, get to know a little bit some folks who may be new to the church or new to the area. And uh, we hope if you are new to the church or the area, please come tonight for sure. But we want everybody to come and we can uh, interact and connect together. Uh, everything, all the food and drinks, everything is provided. Uh, just come and uh, enjoy the time of fellowship together at 5 o'clock uh, later today. And then next Sunday night, we are going to have a potluck, hopefully outdoor picnic, uh, if the weather's okay. And uh, churches. Uh, getting hot dogs and buns and things. And uh, it says in the bulletin a few things for you to bring. And we hope you'll join us for that. And we will, next Sunday, there'll be uh, students who come early back for college. Uh, will be here. We would get a chance to connect with them. And again, a chance to uh, kind of hang out together and fellowship together before uh, the school year starts in a few weeks. There are other things in your bulletin as well. Uh, the insert about the playground. And if you can help with that, that'd be greatly appreciated as also. We're going to ask the ushers to come and uh, take our offering for us as we give back to God from all the ways in which he's blessed us. For every curse, you're the cure. For every sickness, you're the healer. For every soul.
the joys of worshiping together is getting to pray together. And as uh, we take a few moments to pray now, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting us to come to you in prayer. To offer our words of adoration and praise and our words of thanksgiving. And to bring before you all of the things that burden our hearts. Things in our own lives. Things in the lives of our family and friends. People connected to us. This whole world. Holy Father, this morning we come before you and we say thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ and we ask for your grace in our lives and in this world. Father, we pray for everyone today who comes with a sense of grief. We know grief comes to us in a variety of ways and and through a variety of circumstances. In every moment, help us to know that you are at work giving comfort and healing in our grief. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health. And we we pray especially for Martha Nystrom and Florence Tuber, for Bunny Austin and Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and others who are on our hearts and our minds this day. We pray for your healing grace in each one. We pray for encouragement and strength. Father, we pray for the other kinds of burdens that we bring with us today. Disappointment. Frustration. Struggling with sins that we simply feel like we can't quite release. Father, feelings of inadequacy and shame. Lord, in all of the things that we face, may we sense your grace. May we sense your spirit at work in us. And Father, as we think about the future, sometimes we are overwhelmed with fear and worry about the future. Give us the ability to see you, 
to trust you and to know that our future in your hands is always good. Lord, we pray for this world in which we live. So much pain and heartache and war and violence. And Father, we pray that, that you will bring your spirit to bear on our world, that you would ease suffering in so many places, that you would bring an end to terrorism and violence, and you would bring peace in its place. Father, we pray for the church around the world. We think particularly of those who are persecuted in the church in Syria. Christians who, who live with the threat of being kidnapped and worse. Father, we pray for protection, for healing. We pray, Father, that you will defeat the work of the evil one in Syria and in so many places of the world. Father, we pray for your church to be strong and to know our love and our support and most of all to know your spirit. And Father, we pray also for the work of the Lilius Trotter Center, for the Hegemans and the Littles and Gail Schlosser and others who are at work with them. We pray that you will continue to bless the ministry of of two Muslims and, and the ability to communicate the gospel in a way that you use to bring Muslims to faith in you. Pour out your spirit, Father, on this ministry and those involved. And Lord, help us to see the miraculous work of your spirit through them. Thank you, Father, for all that you are doing in our lives. Thank you for the promise of your spirit and your presence with us. As we continue in worship, may we know the power of your grace in our lives, in all that we do. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Following the scripture reading today, children ages 2 through 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. The scripture reading today is Psalm 50, 1 through 23. That's page 561 if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. 
If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked person, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. Please stand and join us as we sing.
Please be seated. Once upon a time, God's people gathered for worship, and how would you complete that sentence? I suspect that we might get as many answers to that question as there are people here. Based on our experiences, based on... Uh, what we've been taught based on how we interpret various elements of Scripture. We all have various ideas about what it means to worship. And that's sometimes been a problem. Okay, it's often been a problem. Is it... Ironic to you that we use this phrase, worship wars, in the church to describe the, the, the difficulty we have in adjusting to the generational ideas about worship. But I suspect that this confusion and struggle to understand worship and, and all of the things related to that, it, it's not something new. It didn't just start 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Confusion about worship and the difficulty of understanding what exactly is going on in worship and what's the point of worship and all of that goes back to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and David, the whole history of the people of Israel. And Psalm 50 is one of the places in which God addresses some of the false understandings and the false practices of Israel's worship life. This psalm is set in the scene of a courtroom. Now, it's kind of interesting to me because I've always been intrigued by courtroom drama. You know, I own a number of seasons of the old television show Perry Mason... Uh, I like watching Law and Order. I've watched, I don't know, however many seasons of that they have. So I consider myself a, a legal expert, you know, with that kind of understanding. Because, you know, that's always the way it works out, right? I know my family thinks I'm nuts, but I've always wanted to serve on a jury. Most people are trying to get out of it. I keep trying to get in, and they won't let me. Now, that's a whole other discussion to have someday. I actually was called for jury duty, grand jury duty, a number of years ago. I went, I'm thinking, this is going to be awesome. And, you know, most of the people in the room are whining and complaining, and people are giving excuses to the judge about why they shouldn't be there. And they got done with all of that, and they said, we still have too many people here. And so they pulled a few names out of a hat. Now, I wanted to win drawings out of a hat. I wanted to lose this one, and they called my name. They said, hey, you know, you've done your duty, you're good. You don't have to worry about being a, in the jury anymore. And I wanted to argue with the judge and say, but I'll stay. It's okay. Let them go. Now, I suspect that if you're sitting at the defense table, 
And your life is in the hands of those 12 people or that judge. It's not quite as intriguing an experience as I'm envisioning it sitting in the jury. And this is the scene we have. Israel is in the dock. Israel is sitting at the defense table. And God says to them, I am the prosecutor, the witness, the judge, and the jury. And he begins by describing why he is able to do that. And it starts in verse 1. It says, The Lord, the mighty one, is God, and he has spoken. He has summoned all humanity from where the sun rises to where it sets. It says, Everybody come and witness this. From Mount Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines in glorious radiance. Our God approaches, and he is not silent. Fire devours everything in his way, and a great storm rages around him. He calls on the heavens above and the earth below to witness the judgment of his people. Bring my faithful people to me, those who made a covenant with me by giving sacrifices. Then let the heavens proclaim his justice, for God himself will be the judge. This, God says, I am the only one worthy to to preside over this court and to be the witness and the prosecutor and the jury. Because I made all of this. And I called you out to be my people and I have, I have given myself to you. You know, we, we go into a courtroom now, the judge in their best day has a hard time sometimes distinguishing between truth and falsehood. Sometimes people get away with things that they shouldn't. And sometimes people are convicted of things that they shouldn't. Because none of us are perfect, but God is the perfect judge and the perfect witness and the perfect prosecutor and the perfect jury. And he says to Israel and he says to us, there are some issues about worship that you need to understand. And at the heart of his concern for them is that they have a wrong view of God. They believe that coming and sacrificing, coming and offering worship to God is somehow somehow doing something, meeting a need that God has. So they they bring their sacrifices because God needs their sacrifices. Something in God is missing, and they are trying to meet that missing need. And when they do that, then they look a lot more appealing to God to do what they want him to do. That's understandable why Israel has that mindset, because all the other nations around them have that mindset. All the nations around them, when they bring their sacrifices to worship, it's because they're gods that are really just just heightened human beings. Come to them, and they come to their gods, and they they say, we're doing this for you, so you'll do this for us. And in reality, all of the things that they do in worship are really about them trying to control God. And God says to Israel, do you think I need this stuff? Do you think I really need what you bring? He says, I have no complaint about your sacrifices, the burnt offerings you constantly offer. But I don't need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. All the animals in the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains. All the animals in the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For all the world's mine and everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? No. See, the point of worship is that 
We are not meeting a need in God. The point of worship is that we come so that God can meet a need in us. And we know we have confused that truth when worship is more about us than it is about God. When we come to worship thinking, okay, God, I hope this is going to, I hope this is going to do what I want it to do. I'm going to come to worship. We come to worship with the wrong mindset, with a mindset of us in control and us in the center instead of God in the center. When we begin judging worship about whether it was what I liked or not. About we walk out and say, let's see, what did that do for me? As opposed to what did I do for God? Again, it's not meeting a need in God. It is simply putting God at the center. And we put God at the center not to meet his need, but so that he can meet ours. But we think our needs are going to be met when we control worship. When it's all about us. When everything that happens in worship is designed by us and arranged by us and manipulated by us and controlled by us, then... That's good worship. And God says to us, he says to Israel, he says to people through the ages, only when worship becomes about me, do you put yourself in a place where I can work in you like I need to. And instead of seeing worship as something we control, we let go of control. We let God be God. We let God do in us what he wants to do. And that means he may indeed work through things that we don't like. He may speak to us in a time in a gathering of worship where we are thinking to ourselves, none of this is connecting with me. And maybe it's in that moment that God will say, and why is that? And he's saying to Israel, look, it's not that you're doing something for me. It's that you put yourself in a place where I can do something for you. And we don't come to worship out of duty and to appease God, to, to try to manipulate God, to get God to do what we want. And that's a hard one for us to get over. Because something in the back of our minds wants to think worship is about fulfilling a duty. It's about doing something we ought to do. Now, it is something that's good for us. It is something that should be a part of our lives, but it's not about duty. I wrestled with this for a long time. I mean, I still wrestle with it like all of us do. But when I first started college, um, you know, I'd grown up in a, in a pastor's home. So, you know, we were in church more weeks than not four or five times a day. We were having some kind of activity at church. So when I started college and I moved away from home, it was my time to go through a little bit of rebellion. And I decided that first semester that I simply wasn't going to go to church. And most of the time I didn't. And I've looked back on that. And one of the reasons is because for me, going to worship was duty. It was an obligation that you fulfill And you can sort of take it or leave it. 
God might be upset with you if you don't go. But it wasn't about meeting God. It wasn't about an opportunity to nurture my relationship with God. And it wasn't an opportunity to nurture my relationship with other people. It was just fulfilling some kind of obligation. And in a rebellious state, no wonder I didn't want to go. And eventually, as the years have rolled along, it's begun to become clearer to me that coming together in worship is about opening my heart to God with each other so God can work in me like I need and like he wants to do. Coming to worship shouldn't be an obligation. It ought to be one of those things that we we can't wait to do. And even if the worship some weeks is, doesn't really connect with us and isn't maybe our, we don't sing our favorite songs or, or we do things a little differently this week than we typically do them and we feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe that's not the worst thing sometimes either. But it ought to be something that, that is so in tune to our lives because we know we're going to experience God there if we're open and we will let him that we can't stay away. It's, I was thinking about this the other night, Friday night, uh, when we were having supper. I was, I, I, we, you know, I've told you we watch a lot of cooking shows. And one of the things that I've seen on there is that, that they love to use, some of the chefs love to use different kinds of peppers. And we hear about these peppers, poblano peppers and piquillo peppers and all these things. And I'm thinking, I want to try those things. So I, I bought one of those peppers and I grilled it, you know, charred it on the grill, hit it in and started eating it. And this pepper I had was really hot. I mean, I could feel my forehead starting to sweat and get really warm. And, and I took another bite and I said to Cindy, wow, this thing is hot. And she said, well, stop eating it. I said, I can't. You know, you'd think that would be the natural thing to do. Just don't eat it. But there was something in me that said, I know it's hot and, and, and things, but I can't stop eating it. And in a sort of crude way, that's, I think there's something about that with worship. That maybe sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable and we come to worship and God challenges us and God speaks into our lives about things. But we can't stop coming because we know it's nourishment for our souls and we know that it's food and it's our lifeblood. And God says to Israel, the problem isn't that you're coming for worship. I don't want you to stop sacrificing, stop worshiping. The problem is just have a new mindset. And here's the thing, when we, our mindset is skewed, our mindset about God and worship is, is skewed and off balance, what ends up happening is that we leave worship and we have this, this idea of a separated life. That worship is one part of our life and the rest of life is something else entirely. And, and we don't really see the connectedness to worship. And that's what God says to the Israelites. You, you come and you sacrifice and then you go out and you ignore me. You treat my words like trash and you applaud immorality and you treat one another, even your own family members, like dirt. And you think because you've sacrificed, because you worship, then it doesn't matter how you live. And God says, oh, it matters. In fact, if coming to worship doesn't change how we live, then something isn't right about what we're doing when we come to worship. 
we, we have created this mindset, especially in the West, that my faith is private and my public life is public. And, and we separate them. You know, I, I've, through the years, I've heard some candidates for presidency who are religious being asked, so how is your religion going to affect your presidency? And it's asked in a way that I hope it's not going to have any bearing on it. And sometimes candidates will say, oh, my faith is private. That has nothing to do with how I might run the country. And people who hear that, some of them say, oh, okay, good, that makes me feel better. And I'm thinking, whoa, 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 wait a second. We're missing the point here. It ought to change how we live. That's, in many ways, that's the point. That what happens in worship so works in our hearts and minds that we go out to be different people. But often we have this dichotomy. I read recently, Mark Laverton says that he was at a worship gathering one time where there was a guy standing down front and it sounded like it was a kind of atmosphere where they might not have even had chairs or things, but people were just standing, probably a very contemporary type setting. And um, as they were getting into the music, this, this person standing there was really engaged. His eyes were closed, his hands were raised, and, and he was dancing around, and, which is fine. I mean, probably we ought to be a little more expressive in worship than we might tend to be. And absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem was that as he was engaged in this worship and so involved in it, he kept stepping on the toes of the people around him. He said, what does this happen once or twice? It happened over and over and over again. And he said, he, as he was stomping in the spirit and trouncing in the spirit on these people, he was totally oblivious to it. And as the day, as the worship time wore on, he just kept stepping on the toes of all these people around him and never even realized it. And he said, I wanted to ask him afterwards, did you realize you were doing that? And he said, I'm sure he would have said, I didn't even notice. I, I wasn't paying any attention to the people around me. And that's the problem. The problem is, we can get so engaged in worship and we sort of focus in on just us and, and we go out and don't pay any attention to the people around us. But the whole point of worship is that it changes how we live. It changes what we do. It changes who we are. At least it should. And the most serious accusation that God makes against Israel is, you, you do all this stuff, you're out there, you're mistreating people, you have this wrong view of me, and you think, I don't care. In verse 21, he says, I am, because I have silent, been silent up to this point, you think I don't care about it. And he says, oh, I care. In fact, he says, he has pretty harsh words. He says, in fact, if this doesn't change, I'm going to destroy you. There are going to be serious consequences. It's one of those verses we read and go, yikes. Did that have to, you have to say it exactly like that? That sounds pretty serious. It is serious. But we have to understand, God is speaking not because he's been offended and so he's going to lash out at these people who aren't worshiping him correctly. He's speaking out like a parent who's watching their child play in the highway and goes out and grabs them out of there and has the most serious conversation and maybe more with them about the danger of playing in the highway. And it's not because the parent is, is offended by this child's behavior. It's because they're scared to death for the well-being of the child. And God's warnings to us are not because we've somehow offended him. 
we've hurt his feelings, it's because he knows that this behavior, if it continues, is leading us to disastrous ends. It's drawing us away from God, away from our lifeblood, away from peace and joy and grace and mercy and everything that we need and everything deep down inside we're dreaming and wishing to have. And not only that, but it's also sending a message to the rest of the world that God doesn't care about how his people act. And so we go out into the world and we talk about how we are followers of God and then we don't act any different, seemingly, than other people. And then we wonder, so why doesn't anybody want to follow God? Why don't the people I talk to want to listen to me, talk to them about Jesus? And we not only are leading ourselves to destruction, but we're also leading others that way too. But what I find fascinating about this psalm is that it's not just a courtroom scene where God is is passing judgment on Israel, but it's It's filled with grace. In verse 14, after he has warned them, and in on into 15, God says, call on me when you're in trouble and I'll rescue you. And verse 23, if you keep to my path, I'll reveal to you the salvation of God. It's always about grace. It's always about God wanting to change us, to turn us around, giving us opportunities, calling us to himself, inviting us to be different. And how is it that we get from where we are to where God wants us to be? The key thing is, he says, is to not forget, to remember. Remember God, remember who he is, remember what God has done. Remember all the ways in which God has rescued you and saved you and been there for you. Remember who God is, a God of love and mercy and grace and goodness. Remember that. I'm convinced that one of the the most serious offenses we make against God is forgetting. When we talk about forgetting, it's not the kind of forgetting that, oh, I forgot to stop at the store and pick up milk. Or it's, I forgot my appointment because I was so engrossed in what I was doing. It's forgetting the nature and the character of God. It's forgetting who God is and what God has done and what God has promised. It's one of the reasons why reading the scripture is so vital to our lives. Because it keeps reminding us. It keeps reminding us of who God is. It keeps reminding us of what God has done. It keeps reminding us of all the ways, things that God has promised to do for us. It keeps putting God in front of us. His nature, his character, his grace. And forgetting who God is leads us to self-centeredness and self, uh, self-absorption. But remembering God keeps us focused on him, the source of life and joy and everything that deep inside we desperately seek. And it's interesting that when we remember, we are much more apt to be people who give thanks. God says here twice, in verse 14 and verse 23, he says, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. Giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. 
it seems to me that the most profound act of worship is giving thanks. Because in giving thanks, we're moving away from ourselves to God and to other people. We are acknowledging that what we have is only because of God's grace. Anything we've accomplished is only because of God's grace. Every good and perfect gift in our lives and in this world is because of God's grace. And we give thanks to him. And a thankful spirit breeds a deeper thankful spirit. And it creates an atmosphere of gratitude. And instead of complaining about what we perceive God to not do, we start focusing on all the things that God is doing. And that spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving creates in us a spirit that looks a lot like Jesus. That looks a lot like our Father in heaven. And ultimately, isn't that what worship is to be? Ultimately, worship is to change us, to transform us so that we look like God. So we are so filled with his spirit that people see Christ in us. They see the Father in us, in our attitude, in our actions, in the way we live our lives and how we treat each other and other people. I mean, ultimately, that is the purpose of worship, to change us into the image of our Father. It's one of the most fascinating concepts that that came to me when I read Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. I mean, in this book, he talks about how really we think that, typically we think the younger son is the center of the story, and, and it's a great thing that this younger son who has gone away and lost and comes back... Or we think that it's the elder brother and his wrestling with legalism and pride and arrogance. But really, the center of the story is the father. He's the center of the story. Tim Keller titled his book about that parable, uh, The Prodigal God. But now one says in this book that it's one thing for us to say, I identify with the younger son. Or I identify with the elder son. There's a sense of comfort that we and a whole lot of other people identify with those folks. But he said, ultimately, ultimately isn't the point we're trying to move toward is that we begin to identify with the Father. And that is a huge step in our journey with God. That we don't settle for just saying, well, you know, we're children and you're going to have to put up with all of our immaturity. But that we start becoming more mature and more looking more like the Father and acting more like the Father. And it's not easy because it means that now we start acting like adults instead of children. And instead of only being the people welcomed home, we become the people who welcome people home. Instead of being the people who are forgiven, we also become the people who forgive. Instead of being the people who offer love, who are offered love and mercy, we become the people who offer love and mercy. And now one says, maybe the most most profound and challenging thing that Jesus ever said was, be compassionate as your father is compassionate.
I think that's the purpose of worship. That ultimately we are so in tune with God that we see one another around us as we are. And our attitudes change and, and our actions change and, our, and our, everything about how we operate changes because in worship we are so open to God that he's working in us and changing us. And we are different people. Once upon a time, God's people gathered for worship. And they were so focused on God and so open to God that they left worship a little bit different than they came. And God was pleased. And the kingdom of God became on earth a little bit more like it is in heaven. Amen. stand and sing with us. Your kindness leads us to repentance. Your goodness draws us to your side. Your mercy calls us to be like you.
Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.